Good morning. Nice to be with you this morning. It was a privilege to be here this weekend and just see the area, get to know your staff and elders a little bit, and we've been greatly encouraged just to see what God has done in your church, what God is doing in your church, and even to anticipate what God is going to do through this body of believers. It's been a real joy and privilege to be here uh, this weekend. So thanks for, thanks for welcoming us and welcoming me in the foyer before, and I'll be happy to meet you after if I've not yet met you uh, this morning. But even more than uh, meeting all of you and, and hearing what God has been doing, I'm excited to get into God's Word. Are you? This is what we come for, right? To hear God from his word. And so turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 1 this morning. Uh, we're going to be studying uh, just the first 13 verses. And we're really going to uh, ask God that he give us a fresh glimpse of who Jesus Christ really is. Because as we journey through life, as we see what got happening in the culture around us, here's one thing that we so desperately need in our world today. It's not just that we believe in Christ. It's about what we believe about Christ as well. Not just that we believe in Christ, but it matters what we believe about Christ. And Mark chapter 1 really unveils for us the full reality of who Jesus is. And I've been praying all week and all weekend long that we would simply come here this morning and catch a fresh glimpse of who he really is. Think about Jesus with me for a moment. Revolutionary, life-transforming, world-changer. This is the Christ that we worship to, the Christ that we serve. And let's be honest. Let's be honest with ourselves. In our North American culture today, there's so many varied beliefs about Jesus going on out there that we need to get straight the truth. So many funky beliefs about Jesus. We need to get straight the truth. Let's think about some of the ways our culture even, even has infiltrated some churches today. Think about Jesus Christ. Some think Jesus Christ is simply a mythical feature, a mythical figure. Like some sort of ancient Greek or Roman god, Zeus and Jesus, they either matter anymore, the stories in the Bible, they're really true. Many people outside the church and even creeping inside the church believe that about Jesus. He's just some sort of mythical feature, figure. Some believe Jesus is just an inspirational teacher. Not sure about the sinless thing or the resurrection deal, but Jesus was a good guy, taught many good moral lessons, inspired a lot of people. Let's just leave him in that category, sort of like a, an earlier Mother Teresa, and that's as far as they leave Jesus, as far as the category of Jesus. Others believe Jesus is a spiritual Dalai Lama, this eccentric guru who introduced the world to some interesting philosophy and deeply spiritual material, but one of a plethora of options that can guide your soul. Yeah, there's this different, and Jesus is just one of the many that can guide your soul. Others believe that Jesus was a rogue renegade. Yeah, a really cool guy from history who came and messed with the social and political and religious systems of this charismatic personality, drew this, this cult-like following. But let's be honest, did the things Jesus really say, were they really true? Did he really matter? Don't think these views are just outside the church. They've also permeated inside many churches. And yet here's the, the truth of who Jesus is. Jesus is what we believe in, in this church, in, in the, the, the evangelical world. We believe this, that Jesus is the Son of God. Divine, sinless Son of God, fully God, fully man, and the one who came to earth to reconcile man to God through the forgiveness of sins and the promise of new life now and forevermore. Amen? That's what we believe. Amen? And this is the point Mark sets out to prove that the last option is the only option. So he wrote the book of Mark from Rome through the eyes of Paul, late 50s, early 60s, uh, after Christ, for, the, for a wider church audience that didn't, wasn't fully uh, understanding and familiar with all the Jewish customs. It's a perfect rendition for us today, Gentiles, in this room in 2021. 
And Mark's purpose was simply this, to clearly identify and reveal the full essence of the person of Jesus Christ to inspire every single heart to fully and radically follow him. As Tim Keller summarizes so well, the gospel of Mark is simply about this, showing us that Jesus is the king and his mission is the cross. So this morning, let's open up the word to Mark chapter 1, and let's roll the red carpet for Jesus. Let's roll the red carpet. Let's stand together as we read Scripture. Nobility, we're walking this room. We stand. We've been up and down all morning. That's okay. Stand one more time. We'll be sitting for 45 minutes, right? One more time for the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written, Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared, baptizing the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying this, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down to untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying this, You are my beloved Son with whom... With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove, out, drove him out into the wilderness. And he's in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering uh, to him. Before we sit down, why don't we just pray and ask that as I preach. That God would open our eyes to see the full truth of the identity of Jesus Christ. Because I can't make you see that. I can't make you understand that or believe that. Only the Holy Spirit can. And so we desperately need him this morning. You need him to hear. I need him to preach. We all need him to reveal himself to us. Let's pray. Fathers, we stand as I kneel, Lord, before you. We do so in submissive reverence for who you are. God, we ask this morning a simple prayer. God, would you in this moment, would you set aside all distractions? Would you put aside all of our our discouragements maybe or all the things that we came in here thinking about and and worrying about? And and would you help us simply for the next 45 minutes just focus in on on who you are? May your word speak to us today, God, clearly. Would would your son be revealed to us so, so evidently that our hearts are moved, our hearts are changed by the reality of Jesus Christ? God, would you transform us from one degree of glory to another? as we study and as we see the glory of Jesus Christ. We love you, God. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to invite you to take a seat for the last time until you have to stand and sing again. The outline's in the back of your bulletin, and let me uh, just walk through this with you verse by verse, starting at chapter 1, verse 1. Here's the reality of Jesus Christ. This passage is simply Mark uh, showing us that God announced his son emphatically to us. God was so determined that we understood who Jesus was and who Jesus is that he announced his son emphatically to us. As you see here, the first verse, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. And this should really be called the gospel of Jesus, not the gospel of Mark. Look at, the, look at what it's saying here. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The whole Bible is about Jesus Christ. This book is about, this chapter is about Jesus Christ. Notice this, it says, in the beginning. 
And quite a definitive opening statement, isn't it? In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, what a statement to open up the gospel of Mark was. Think of the words, in the beginning. Have you heard those before? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God, what did he do in the beginning? God created. In the beginning, it says here, in the beginning, this is like this, the second era of, of God's creation, the first era. God created Genesis 1, 1. He breathed everything into being. Second era of his creation is right here, right now. He is ushering in a new era of human history where we are now going to relate to him in a different way than ever before. It's going to be through his son, Jesus Christ. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. While Matthew and Luke uh, talked about Jesus' childhood, Mark jumps straight to the first days of his public ministry to show us that he's just no ordinary little baby. He's not just a prophet. He is the son of God. In the beginning, in the beginning of the second era of human history as God designed it, the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel simply means this. It's in the, in the original language, it's euangelion, euangelion, Old Testament reward for good tidings, New Testament news. Literally, this means good news. So often the church, they've come to the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is not just the gospel. The gospel is good news. It's great news. It's awesome news. It's not any kind of news. It's not fake news. We hear a lot of today. This is the greatest news ever. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is God's greatest news. Notice the, the name he gave his son, Jesus Christ. He didn't come up with this name from the top ten baby names of that era. Jesus literally means this. Jesus means that Yahweh is salvation, a derivative of Yeshua or Joshua. Jesus is Yahweh is salvation, derivative of Yeshua or Joshua. Think about this, what Moses couldn't do, get people to the promised land, Joshua did do. But what Joshua couldn't do, ultimately save his people and deliver them to the ultimate promised land, Jesus came and did do. He, he, at this point, will do, but has done as we know it today. Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name, as some have come to understand Jesus Christ. Christ means the anointed Messiah. God's special agent on earth, he is salvation, God's anointed Messiah. He is, it says it right here, the Son of God. This is a term of divinity that the Bible uses, so there's no shadow of a doubt. Is Jesus really God? He is the Son of God. Divine term, John chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, and Hebrews chapter 1 all tell us that Jesus actually is God. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Colossians chapter 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God in whom the fullness of God dwells. Hebrews chapter 1, he is the, the exact imprint of the nature of God. People ask you, they ask me, so what does God look like? Here's what you can tell them. He looks like Jesus. Jesus isn't just a doppelganger or like a, some father and sons or mothers and daughters, the mini-me. He's not just a doppelganger or a mini-me of God. He is actually God. The father and son in this context, so intimately known and intricately entwined. Distinct in personality and function, the father and son, yet equal in power and divinity. He is the real deal. He is God. This is a picture of God in his son, Jesus Christ. Significant. Christos is an anointed royal figure, not just a king, but the king. 
Lots of kings. Not just a king is Jesus. He is the king. How do we know this? Sounds good, but how do we know this? Well, we know this. Look at verse 2. God sent a couple of forerunners, a couple of prophets, Malachi and Isaiah, to come and, and make sure that we knew when Jesus came we wouldn't miss him. So they foretold, they prophesied about, about Jesus and also about one coming before Jesus named John the Baptist who was going to pave the way for him. It says in verse 2 here, as is written in the book of Isaiah by Isaiah the prophet, Actually, it's quoting both Isaiah and Malachi. Isaiah 40, verse 3, written 700 years before Christ. Malachi 3, verse 1, written 400 years before Christ. This is a long ways before. Hey, when Jesus comes, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to send a messenger before your face who prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight his paths. Prophets foretelling about Jesus. It's you guys like football in the States. We like football in Canada too. It's like the fullback going through the hole and making a way for the tailback. It's, it's like the, the, the play announcer, the, the stagehand coming out and giving the, what's going to happen in the next scene. These are the prophets. It's, it's like the town crier, hear ye, hear ye. Jesus is here. This is what they, God sent the prophets and John the Baptist for. John appeared, it says here, baptizing the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance. Not just telling us, hey, Jesus is coming, but when he comes, there's going to have to be a response to Jesus. Not just, a, oh, yeah, that's who it is. No, we're going to have to respond to Jesus in a way that changes our lives, a baptism of repentance. Basically, John's calling for a response. When you see Jesus, you're going to have to get ready for the Messiah, for being right with God. Repentance, we hear about that a lot in the Scriptures. It's actually Jesus' first message too: repent and be baptized. Repentance is more than a feeling of being sorry for something you've done wrong. Oh, man, I've messed up. Everyone messes up, it's okay, you know? But no, repentance is something different than that. Repentance is seeing the full reality of who God is, who Jesus is, the holiness of God, and, and becoming undone in his presence and determining because of who God is, he's so holy, I am not. I'm becoming undone in his presence, and so, so much so that I am done with my sin and moving on into righteousness. And baptism is simply declaring that that is the reality. Baptism is declaring that, that I have died to my old self, the sinful self. I've died to my old self. I'm being purified and washed by the blood of Jesus, being raised to a brand new life in Christ to live totally different than I used to before in Jesus Christ. I'm leaving the old life of sin behind, and I'm now following Jesus, my public declaration of following Jesus Christ. This is the non-negotiable call of really, truly seeing Jesus Christ as Messiah. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him, were being baptized by him. People were seeing and, and responding, confessing their sin. Notice confession of sin is part of truly seeing Jesus and encountering Christ. Look, it says in verse 6, Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and honey. Interesting dude, this John, wasn't he? Hey, there's going to be a Messiah coming. There's going to be a forerunner coming. They're both going to be pretty unique. Good thing I didn't show up wearing my leather belt, and that's it, hey? Notice John was coming. He was so determined that, that he was going to announce Jesus. He wasn't concerned about, like, like his, his fancy clothes and his gourmet meals. He's, he's dressed as plain and primitive as possible because he was all consumed with one thing, making sure that we knew that the Messiah was the Messiah, that Jesus was the man. Forget about me. We want you to see Jesus. doesn't matter if we know John. We want to see Jesus. The all-worthy one, it says here, 
John's preaching this, after me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Jesus said John was the greatest of all men. Remember? John says, oh, I'm not that great. If I'm the greatest of all men, like I'm not even worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. Back in that day, the open-toed shoes in the desert, been to Israel, it's not a clean place as far as the dust and no one washed each other's feet. Even the Jews didn't wash each other's feet. That was left for the lowliest of the lowly of the servants. And John's saying, Jesus is so high that I'm not even worthy to be the lowliest of the lowly of servants. You get in the picture of, of, of big Jesus, little John? I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John's saying, I'm coming just to pave the way. I'm just coming to show you a glimpse of Jesus. John baptized with water. What, what's that mean? John baptized, John's ministry was simply predominantly to the covenant Jews already, and he was telling them, you need to repent of your sin. You need to now come and relate to God. Forget your traditions of Jewish traditions. You now relate to God through Jesus Christ. It was an external baptism to show repentance of sins, and I'm going to put my faith in Jesus. But it did nothing to change the inner heart so Jesus was going to come and, and, not, and not just forgive sins, but he was actually going to change the, the inner trajectory of the heart so that we could be attuned to him and, and acclimatize our lives to him and be actively following him. So John's baptism externally shows a, a heart ready for Jesus. Jesus' baptism would change the very essence of our being and transform us from the inside out as he transformed with water and with the Holy Spirit. I know there's a lot in there already. Let's just stop and think about this for a minute. What Mark is trying to do is help us see, help us see the, a grander picture of Jesus than most of us in this room even have in our minds and hearts right now. We hear so much about Jesus, he just becomes another, oh yeah, Jesus. I got my mom, I got my dad, I got... No, no, Jesus stands apart from everybody else in our lives, in human history. Jesus in the league of his own. This is, this is, this is like the headline of all headlines. You know how we sometimes see the, the headlines from the, the, the early 1900s or 1940s are in a plaque and they go and they sell on, the, on eBay for all X amount of dollars because of the headlines of whatever. Like, this is the headline of all headlines. This is what we should be cutting out and putting on a plaque and selling for millions because this is the headline that changes all of human history right here in Mark chapter 1. Are you, get, are you with me? I'm a participative preacher. I like the nods and the amens and the... I'm getting excited. Are you getting excited about this? Yeah. How can you nod? The ushering in of the second era of human history, we're going to relate to God through his son, Jesus Christ. Uh, th this is bigger than any industrial revolution, bigger than any World War I or II or Age of Enlightenment or the Renaissance or this medical revolution or the American Revolution, whatever we call the most influential period of human history, this would trump all of those. Sorry to use that word. All Mark is trying to do here is simply this. Show us that God is announcing his son emphatically. I know we've got to keep moving, so let's look at the second little section here. God also affirmed his son dramatically. God affirmed his son dramatically. The spotlight now turns from John to Jesus Christ, the one that they're talking about. He's going to come, he's going to come. It's like here he is. 
the one whom all the hype is about. And so here's what we see in verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth to Galilee, showing that God is affirming his son dramatically. He came from Nazareth to, of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Uh, in this day, the Jews, would all be, the bells and whistles would be going off. Nazareth? Ding, 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 ding. Wasn't the Messiah supposed to be coming from a place called Nazareth? Ding, ding, ding. And he was baptized. And when he came up with the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. A few short verses, but we can't miss the significance of these. This is unpacked a little more in depth in Matthew and Luke, but here, here we have just a simple announcement of Jesus being baptized, showing us both the essential reality of baptism for us as believers. Even the Son of God was baptized. But also the clear validation that Jesus received from God through his own obedience. In those days, it says, what days? Well, Jesus would have been 30 by now, gone through all the, all the um, priestly customs, and, and uh, the age of the Levites were officially permitted to enter the priesthood. So Jesus went through all the protocols to validate his place as supreme high priest. And then he was baptized. Think about this. Jesus was baptized. Circumcised on the eighth day, according to all the Jewish customs, sinless. Didn't need to demonstrate anything to anybody, but humbly revealed from the onset of his ministry how he was going to die and rise again with a newness of life for you and I. Jesus' baptism was not because of sin. We get baptized to show that our old life is gone, our new life is here. Jesus' baptism was not because of any kind of sin, but to fulfill all righteousness. Huge difference there. It's not got Jesus in any category like us. Jesus showed us the way. This event was so significant that every member of the Godhead showed up for it. You don't see Trinity anywhere in the Bible, that word. You'll never find it. You can look, maybe in some bad rendition, but you will never find the word Trinity. But what you do see is you find it right here, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God showed up. The Son was in the water. The Holy Spirit was the dove, and the Father was the voice. Interesting, in Genesis, it begins with God creating, Father, Son, Holy Spirit creating. Let us make man in whose image? Not my image, God said, in our image. Second era being Jesus' life here coming in, how God's going to relate to his people. We see the Trinity again, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each fully and equally God, an eternal relation with each other, yet completely distinct from each other in roles. One God, three persons. Father overseeing and orchestrating everything, overarching rule and authority, the Son carrying out the Father's plan of salvation, firstborn of all creation, head of the church, now rules from the right hand of God, the Spirit, God's active agent in the world today, guiding in all truth, drawing unbelievers to the Lord, and dwelling believers, and accomplishing God's work. Here's the point, the Holy Spirit now coming on Jesus visually, because Jesus was always filled with the Spirit, he's the Son of God, right? But to announce the official start of his ministry. And God's voice, God's voice. Remember how he spoke the world into being? That's how powerful he just speaks and it happens. His voice now booming over Jesus' life. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Beloved is a, the Greek is a gapatos. It's an esteemed love, a favorite kind of love. It's a worthy of love. This is like a a set-apart kind of love. And it's a, a double nuance here. My beloved son. We think, of course you're going to love your son, of course. But this is my beloved son. It's like, this is the son I really, really love. This is my uber-loved son. 
And get this. Why did God send his unbelievably loved son to earth? Because he loves you and I so much that he knew the only way for us to come to God the Father was through the death and sacrifice of his perfect beloved son. I don't know about you, but there was no heavenly loudspeaker when I graduated college or preached my first sermon. God's obvious hand is upon his son affirming and confirming who he really is. And then God authenticated his son definitively in the wilderness of temptation. Look what it says in verses 12 and 13. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Other Variations in the gospel say that the Spirit led him to the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. The Spirit immediately drove Jesus to the wilderness not to crush him or tempt him but to prove that he couldn't be tempted and he would never be crushed but he would conquer instead of being crushed over sin. He led him in the wilderness to show to us that he who knew no sin would ultimately become sin for you and I. Mark's intent in all this is to show that God was with Jesus, protecting Jesus and ministering to Jesus through the the angels. Interesting to note in this as we think of this text, and he was in the wilderness 40 days. This is the, the wilderness place, is the place of gloom and terror, abode of devils and unclean beasts. That's sort of what it represents here. And yet, Jesus was protected like Daniel and ministered to by the angels. But think about the the, the desert place, the 40 years, Elijah, Elisha, Moses, Israel, the Old Testament prophets received their commission and revelation where? Often where? On the mountaintops? In the wilderness. The wilderness is a place we avoid, but it's a place that God commissioned his prophets and revealed himself to his prophets. Moses, 40 years in the wilderness before his ministry began. Israelites, 40 years in the desert before the promised land. Jesus, 40 days in the wilderness before his ministry began. We see in different texts in Luke four and Matthew four, the all that took place in the wilderness and the temptation place. And Mark doesn't find it necessary for us to know all those details in this context, so we'll stick with Mark's context right now. But here's what Mark was focusing on simply, I believe, is to show us that Jesus faced and conquered all the temptations that we will also face and conquer. To show us not only that he overcomes, but through him we can also overcome. The bottom line is this, Jesus passed the test. Let's be honest, you throw me in the temptation of the wilderness and I fail pretty much every single time. You're a pastor, you're supposed to be spiritual. You hear me? I fail the test almost every single time. And yet Jesus passed the test with flying colors. You seen the distinction what Mark's trying to make for us here? Jesus... 
far above us. Jesus truly is, let's be honest, Jesus truly is the Son of God. That is Mark's point throughout the whole book, and we see it clearly in the first, first 13 verses of this chapter. Jesus truly is the Son of God. Which begs the question, who do you really say Jesus is? Not just off your lips today, because I'm sure if I pulled the audience this morning, we'd all say the same, oh yeah, Jesus is the Son of God. But, but the depths of your being and the reality of how you live your life and how you relate to God, who do you really say Jesus is? Is he a myth? Is he a good teacher? Is he a Dalai Lama? Is he a renegade? Or is he truly the Son of God? C.S. Lewis says this, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says uh, he is a poached egg or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. He is the son of God. Who is Jesus really to you today in your heart? Have you elevated Jesus to the throne of your life, to the, uh, to, the, to the places of the God of the universe, or have you adopted him as your little buddy next door, or even less, like someone that's not even worthy of, of too much of your attention these days? Because Mark's not writing to us simply just to give us some intellectual understanding of who Jesus is. And now that we all have our theology straight, we can go on with our lives as normal. Mark is writing to us that we'd see Jesus, that we'd understand Jesus, and that ultimately we'd respond to Jesus in the very depths of our hearts that changes the way we live our lives uh, from this point forward. And Mark is really giving us an invitation throughout the whole book to respond to Jesus in a way that changes our lives. And it matters what you do with the invitation that God gives you through his servant Mark, through the rendering of his word. It's not just spam in your inbox you can delete. It's not just the junk mail you get in your mailbox that you throw out. It's, it's more like an RSVP, RSVP to the greatest wedding feast of all wedding feasts in glory. And let's be honest, there's different ways we respond to those wedding invitations, isn't there? When we get them. Some of us read it, see who it is, and we just file it, file it in the garbage because we have no intention of going. Other of us get the wedding invitation, oh, that'd be a cool event to go to. Maybe I'll think about it and we throw it on the table. I missed a pile of everything else to think, oh, maybe I'll get to this later. I'm pretty busy right now. Maybe I'll get to it later, only sometimes to miss the deadlines. Others of us see the wedding invitation and we think, oh, this is people that I really love and appreciate. Let me stick it on the fridge so I don't forget. And yet we still keep going on with our lives and we never really get around to taking it off the fridge sometimes. And yet others of us get that wedding invitation. It's our son or our daughter or someone that we love very deeply. We get it and we open it with joy and we, we respond. We put the stamp on it. We send it back in the mail because we cannot miss. We cannot miss. Any deadline when it comes to that wedding, we want to be there. The truth is, Jesus gives us this picture of himself and the word, and he gives us an invitation to join him at the wedding feast. But there is a deadline on it. We just don't know when our deadline is going to come. 
each of us individually. So there's an urgency to this passage. There's an urgency to this reality of Jesus being the Son of God. It's a, it's a, I need to see this and respond immediately. And, and, and here's three ways. Maybe you won't find it in the text, but here's three ways that God's Word points out to us that we need to respond, that we know that we got the stamp on that envelope. It's in the mail, and we're going to be at the wedding feast. Here's three ways to respond to a message on the reality of Jesus Christ being the Son of God. Here's the first one. Here's how God wants us to respond to this text. Number one, we need to declare Jesus as the one true God. We need to declare Jesus as the one true God. Here's John 17, verse 3, and this is eternal life. This is where eternal life is found, that you may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, who is God, whom you have sent. We need to acknowledge that Jesus is the God he says he is. He's a sinless Savior, and I realize that I am nothing like him. I am just a sinful sojourner. Sinless Savior, sinful sojourner. That's what it means to declare Jesus the Son of God. It's acknowledging that I need Jesus Christ. I don't know about you, but I realize more and more. I just turned 46, and I thought by my mid-40s I have things figured out a little bit in life. But the older I get, the more I realize that I need Jesus more today than I did at 20, it seems. At 20, I thought he'd be a little more sanctified than I am at 46. And the, the, more, the older I get, the more I realize I need Jesus. I need Jesus. He is everything. I am nothing. I need to declare him daily that he is the true God of the universe. And respond the way that John called to respond, the way that Jesus called us to respond with repentance and baptism and believing. How do we declare Jesus as the one true God? It's simply this. It's repentance is coming to the end of myself and all of my striving and all of my trying and all of my endeavoring to be this good little person that I can never possibly be and, and somehow trying to be the, the little G of this life. I'm the little God that the world tells us, right? But I'm not the little God. There's one God and it's Jesus Christ. And I'm done striving and trying and trying to manufacture my life and manipulate things. I'm just going to trust in Jesus. I'm going to turn for myself and trust that Jesus is the only one who can save me from myself, my sin, and ultimately from hell itself. I turn from me and turn to Jesus. I'm going to believe. I'm going to believe. But belief isn't just like this little nod, like, yeah, I get that's true, it's true. Belief is an intellectual, it's not just an intellectual assent to a truth, it's acknowledging that, man, I am a sinner. My sin separates me from God, and I'm going to believe that Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father but by him. It's, it's declaring that Jesus is true God by knowing him. See, this was says in John 17, that they may know you. It's not knowing about Jesus, it's knowing Jesus. They might know you. That you might meet Christ face to face and, and, and realize that he, bec- he becomes my everything and my everything is found in him and, and he is life for my soul and without Jesus my heart is stone cold to the things of God. But with Jesus, Ezekiel chapter 36 tells us that, that, that Jesus comes and he takes our hearts of stone and gives us a heart of flesh, a heart that beats to the tune of Jesus' drum, a heart that longs for Jesus, a long, heart that longs to commune with Jesus and even walk in the ways of righteousness and know him and love him. This is declaring Jesus as the one true God. How many people have you met? Maybe you've done it before. Oh, yeah, I believe. But I don't really believe. Do all the right things, but you know there's been no change of mind. There's been no change of heart. There's been no change of will. There's been no change of anything. But I believe. 
declaring Jesus as the one true God means that I am changed. Here's also respond to Jesus. If Jesus is truly the Son of God, then I don't just declare him as the one true God. I submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 14, verses 8 and 9. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be both Lord of the dead and Lord of the living. Let me read that again. This is submitting to the Lordship of Christ. And so often I hear salvation packaged in North America. Well, you just got to believe. You just got to say, yes, I agree, I agree. But, but never get to the submission of the Lordship of Christ. To, to truly understand Jesus as Son of God, we submit to him because that's his whole purpose and plan for, in coming to this earth is that we'd have salvation, yes, relationship with God, but also submit to the Lordship of Christ. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For this, to this end, Christ came and dead and lived, that he might be both Lord of the dead and of the living. Philippians 2 tells us that one day every knee is going to bow. Every knee is going to bow. Whether you acknowledge Jesus or not, every knee is going to bow. Some are going to willfully bow here. Some are going to be forced to bow one day in heaven. Not in heaven, but on the other side. The greatest blessing is for those who choose to submit now. And What does it mean to submit to Christ? Not just I agree with the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, but now it's, I'm going to let him be CEO of my life. Jesus came to deliver us from ourselves and our sin and to move us to a life engulfed in him. Jesus' invitation in 20 times in the gospel is, follow me, come with me, follow me. When we acknowledge Jesus the Son of God, he takes us on a new path of life. I was telling someone earlier today, as I met them in the foyer, my plan was never to be a pastor. I grew up as a pastor's kid, and one thing I said, I will never be a, I actually used a couple adjectives I wouldn't use in church. Pastor's kid. I would never be a pastor. And yet when, when I met Jesus, and, and, and I truly understood him for who he really was, which wasn't probably until about first year of college, even though I grew up in the church and said all the right things and did all the right things, got, Jesus grabbed me and changed me. And as I submitted myself to his life, he took me on a whole new path of life that I would have never planned or purposed for myself, but one that's far better than I could have ever planned or purposed for myself. His agenda means that I'm going to trade my goals, my dreams, and my ambitions for his plans and his purposes for my life. Not, and not, it's not a how can God serve me reality, knowing Jesus. It's how can I serve God with my time, my talents, my treasures, my everything. How can I live my life on this earth for his glory? And it's living his ways. That's what submission is. It's his, it's his agenda and it's living his ways. It's, it's, it's follow the leader now, but not like, a, it's not like a Simon says. It's a Jesus says. A Jesus says, I will do it. First John tells us that the litmus test of following Jesus isn't whether we come to church on Sunday, whether we raise our hands in worship, or whether we have all the scripture memorized. It's, it's if we live in obedience. Living in a way that pleases God over dishonors God. Aiming for humility over pride. Aiming for righteousness over sinfulness and in your hearts, you know your battles. I know my battle. You know your battles. Living for Christ over those things and making a decision. I'm going to fight my own natural inclinations and desires. And I'm going to follow Jesus by his strength and his power through the Spirit. 
living to honor God over dishonoring God. And ultimately surrendering ourselves to his word. Putting ourselves under the authority of his word. So many people want the word and they want it under their authority. I'm going to twist it, manipulate it, say what I want to fit my natural desires. And my, no, it's not that. It's I want to get myself under the word of God. I want to, I want to follow God. I want to be attuned to his, his way and his will through his word. Jesus is the Son of God. If Jesus is truly the Son of God in our hearts, we will aim to live a life submitted to the Lordship of Christ. And finally this, we will worship Jesus as my King forever. To truly say that Jesus is the Son of God, it evokes within us a heart of worship. Not a ho-hum, here's Jesus, but a heart of worship, a heart of awe, a heart of wonder of who Jesus is. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. But the... But of the Son, he says this. This is of the Son. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Notice this in the New Testament. When people truly saw Jesus, I mean truly saw Jesus, not understood and then hardened their heart and walked with him. They truly understood who Jesus was and truly saw him as the Son of God, the divine Messiah, the Savior. They worshipped him. They worshipped him. Matthew 28, verse 9, when they... And behold, Jesus met them and greeted them. They came and took a hold of his feet and they bowed low and worshipped him and worshipped him. Matthew 14, those who were on the boat after he calmed the storm, you are certainly God's son. They worshipped him. In 2 Corinthians three eighteen. but we all with unveiled face behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Here's the ultimate reality of how we acknowledge Jesus Christ as the son of God. We live lives of ultimate adoration and reverence and worship. To revere God, to respect Him and put Him on the throne of your heart. We worship a lot of things in our culture. We worship ourselves mostly, we worship our families, we worship our sports, we worship our movie stars and everybody and everything else. But here's the reality, if we acknowledge Jesus, Son of God, we worship Him, He comes above all of those things. He's the glorious king forever. We bow and on. Even evokes not just an intellectual response, but an emotional response from us at certain times. He is not just Jesus. He is the awesome God of the universe. Easy to sit down and look out over a sunrise or a sunset and be in awe. When was the last time you were in awe of the Son of God? Captivated by His presence, mesmerized by His character, becoming undone because He's so unlike us and He's the most beautiful, glorious person on the planet we could ever see. Maybe not our physical eyes, but the eyes of our hearts. To worship Jesus is to acknowledge he is the Son of God and finally it's just to love him. 1 Peter 1.9, referring to the revelation of Jesus Christ. If you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining of your faith the salvation of your souls. The love of Jesus Christ is our ultimate aim. Everything else falls out of that. 
The more we behold the glory of Jesus, the more we love Jesus, that's where our desire for obedience comes. That's, that's where our desire for, for witnessing comes. That's where everything comes. You try and do that on your own strength, you can't do that. You try and do that because and muster up all those things, you can't do it. You behold Jesus. You love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Holy Spirit within us creates within us the desire to be close to him, to walk with him, and to accomplish all that he's accomplished us, called us to accomplish in this life. But it starts with simply beholding the glory of Jesus Christ. God, out of his immense love for you, gave us his son. And out of our immense love for God, because of the reality of our salvation, still can't believe that God would save a sinner like me. Still can't believe that God is patient and faithful to a wayward, fickle man like me. The way we respond to that is simply not to try harder, not to do more, but to love him with everything we have and say, God, you gave me your life in your son. Now I give you mine. And Jesus becomes our ultimate treasure, our greatest goal, and our deepest desire of our lives. Let me pray. Father, so much truth packed into one passage of Scripture. We can easily read this and gloss over it and understand the full implications of it, God. And I know I haven't communicated fully the full reality of of capturing Jesus and what your son ought to mean to us and how we ought to live in spite of, in in the reality, in light of Jesus. But God, I pray that somehow by your Holy Spirit you would have stirred in a little way every heart here to see the glory of your son. Not just to see and understand, but to respond in a way that honors you. Father, for the man or woman here, young person or child here that is a hard heart to you and really couldn't care less about your son, oh, Father, I pray to you that you'd penetrate that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that somehow the lights would go on in their minds, the lights would go on in their hearts, they'd see Jesus for who he really is and want to respond today, not just for heaven or hell, but because they long to meet this person named Jesus. God, I pray for the person here that's here in body, but maybe not in spirit, and physically here, been committed to all the things of Christ, but in their heart, they know that somewhere along the way, they've lost their first love for Jesus. They've lost that wonder and awe for the one who gave them his everything. God, I pray by your mercy and grace that you just put a little spark in that heart. Light a fire, breathe spiritual life into that soul again in a way that would make One desire to run away from their sin and their selfishness and run to Jesus for hope and healing and fullness. God, I pray for that one here that is already in a place where they're beholding your glory and loving you and living for you. God, I pray simply that this passage would encourage them, invigorate them, empower them to go from this place and continue to do what they're doing, to put you first in their lives, to share you with all that that will listen to live lives of worship and sacrifice for you, Lord. Holy Spirit, apply this text, maybe in ways that I have no idea what you're doing in people's lives. But do it, Lord, in an unmistakable way, I pray. 
that draws us to you for your 